This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And let me break that down real quick for you. Before God created the world, he chose you and he loved you. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, Anchor Church. How are we? Good for the three people in the room who are good. I hope, I hope the rest of you are good. Whether you are in the room or watching online this morning, we desperately want you to know that you are loved. Uh, and as Sam has already mentioned, Ephesians chapter 1 is a giant love poem and celebration and blessing and prayer. Um, I just want to point your attention to these little ESV journaling booklets that are available on the Connect desk as we work our way through Ephesians over the next 11 weeks. We would love you to be meditating on God's Word, not just on Sundays, but during the week, taking notes, taking this booklet to GC, unpacking what you've learned on Sunday together in community. That's a really significant part of what we do. These are available for sale. I don't know how much they are, to be honest with you. Um, Ten bucks. There you go. Um, and it has the text and then space for you to take notes. We would love a resurgence of note-taking uh, in the message. So make sure you grab one of them. The second thing is that we've launched a uh, 23-day Bible reading program on the YouVersion Bible app. And you can follow along during this Ephesians journey. And all you would need to do is read two readings a week. And you'll have read through the whole book of Ephesians in the 11 weeks that we are covering this Series. So I hope that they are a blessing to you um, as we work, work through this series. We believe that God uh, wants to do a profound work during this series. Uh, and it's, I'm so excited to see creative um, output as well. Um, we love, I love seeing songs written. So everything that we've done is to serve you guys, to help you know that you're loved. 
Well, as, um, as has already been mentioned, this series is called Tear Down These Walls, and I think you'll see the sermon graphic behind us. That's a reference to a line from Ephesians 3 where Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, has been removed. Uh, and then he appeals to the church in chapter 4 to be united, to do everything within their power to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is the book of unity. In fact, N.T. Wright said if the book of Ephesians was at the center of the Reformation, perhaps the church might look very different to what it does now because the themes of unity and the themes of oneness and the themes of a new humanity that emerge out of the book of Ephesians are so unique and strong and very different from Galatians and Romans, which were at the center of the Reformation. This book is about God's project, His mission, His plan to build a new humanity. And it's a book that um, is close to my heart. I became a Christian at age 17, listening to the preaching of the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. A classic passage about the concept of grace. And uh, it was at my home church in the Hills District. And there was a student minister from my church preaching what was a very boring sermon. You know, all the trainee student ministers at church preaching this sermon at evening church. It was their, their turn to have a shot. Boring sermon. I was not engaged at all, but for some reason, the concept of grace captured my heart. Not the first time I'd heard it, but I just got it. I understood what grace was in a fresh way with a new perspective, and I remember standing in the car park at St. Matt's at West Pennant Hills, deciding in that moment, on the basis of the grace of God, that I was going to surrender everything to Jesus. And to be honest, I've never quite recovered from God's grace since. The book of Ephesians has a special place in my heart. And from that moment, I would say that I had a new life, uh, completely new life, a new commitment to church. Like before that, I was dragged to church out of obligation by my parents. After that, I was the first person to arrive and the last person to leave, and that was well before anyone paid me to do any of that. And that was me for years. I couldn't, I couldn't get to church earlier, and I was always the last person. In fact, the staff team at my home church started rostering me onto lockup because they knew that I was always there to be the last person to leave. It led to this um, new, new way of living. My, my entire ethic and moral framework completely changed. My life changed dramatically. My relationships changed. Everything about me changed. And it's interesting that as Paul begins to walk our, our way through this book of Ephesians, that same reality takes place. He talks about new life that has been given. He talks about new ethics that are formed, new relationships, new community. He talks about how this good news of Jesus impacts every single corner and facet of our lives, including what happens in our homes and families and relationships and workplaces. As I've mentioned, the theme of this book is about a new humanity, a new humanity, a new people that God is building. And this is a book about unity in a time of deep division. If you think about the world that we live in, we live in a world that is more divided, more tribal than it has ever been in the past. We desperately need to hear the message of Ephesians. And the phrase that has been used to summarize this book is called peace through grace. Peace through grace. 
that peace has been achieved. Peace with God, peace with each other, and that peace has come because of God's generous, lavish, wild grace that He has poured out upon us. Peace through grace. The book can be broken up into two halves. I'm sure you're aware of this. Chapter 1 to 3 is about reality. That is the gospel. This is the true reality of the world of our lives. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, the whole book hinges and changes direction from what God has done to then how we live. And chapters 4 to 6 is about our response to the true reality of this world, our response to the good news of Jesus. And so I cannot wait to dive into this book as we spend the next 11 weeks camped out here. And honestly, I could spend four weeks just on the passage we have with us today. So I need God's help. You need, I'm going to pray for us as we jump in. So please join me as I pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who has gone to great lengths to demonstrate to us, your people, that we are loved. God, we thank you for this earth-shatteringly countercultural concept of grace. Grace that binds us together because we come to you on equal terms. We don't bring our merit, our effort, our striving. We all come to the foot of the cross. Sin is in need of grace. And God, we thank you that you are committed to making us your people. So God, I pray that you would stir our affections for you over this series. Help us to see with fresh eyes what it means to be your people in this cultural moment, what it means to be a united people. God, we pray now as we look at Ephesians 1 that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us by your Spirit. God, I know there are many people in this room who are struggling to believe that, that you love them. And so God, I pray that you would speak now by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said... Amen. Well, if you were to send a message to someone, uh, and you're an iPhone user, I'm not sure if this is true on Android, but if you were to send a message to someone that you were discussing about a potential crisis of identity, and you were to look for the little memes that come up and type in, who am I? The first meme that pops up is a meme of what? Of who? Does anyone know? None of you are willing to admit that you've ever sent that message to a friend. It is Ben Stiller from the movie Zoolander in 2021, that iconic movie that's probably best remembered for Blue Steel and a bunch of other one-liners that are probably all inappropriate and not PC these days. But that that, that sort of refrain that comes up over and over again in the movie uh, Zoolander, there's a scene where Ben is sitting in his hometown pub with his father and his two brothers who are all coal miners, and here is, um, I don't even know what his character's name is in the movie. And he's um, a male model. And the ad that comes on TV is a, a picture of him as a merman swimming in the ocean. And he says, the essence of water is wetness. And the essence of wetness is water. And it's some ad. And, and the whole pub erupts into laughter. And his father gets up and he says to him, you are dead to me. You're more dead to me than your late mother. And they get out and they walk out of the pub and the whole pub's burst out in laughter and he walks outside and he says, who am I? Who am I? It's a question of identity. And it's interesting that it's still there on your phone. 20 years later, that is still there on our phones because it's a question that we continue to ask. Who am I? A question of identity. And identity is a really significant part of our cultural narrative, of our story. And it consists of two really key things. 
The first is, it's a sense of self. You have an awareness, a sense of who you truly are. And that sense of self transcends all of the circumstances and relationships and and parts of your life. Like, I am a a father and a husband at home. I'm a a boss and a leader at work. I'm a, a son and a brother in my extended family. And those are parts of my identity, but there has to be something that is true of who I am that, that is true in all of those circumstances, in all of those contexts. Otherwise, we're simply just masks in different contexts with no face behind it. There is something about us. We have this deep sense of self, of who we are. That's the first aspect of identity. The second aspect is a sense of worth. So a sense of self and a sense of worth. That We have a sense of how valuable we are. We have a sense of our significance. We have a sense of our worth. Self-knowledge and self-regard. That's what identity is about. Tim Keller, in his book, um, Making Sense of God, talks about the difference in identity formation between ancient and modern cultures. He says that in ancient culture, your identity is formed as you look out predominantly to your community and your family. And so you are shaped, your identity is shaped by the culture that you're born into, the community that you're born into, your family, and there is often associated roles that come with your your, um, community, in in your family, as well as, you know, obviously in, in ancient cultures, cosmic and spiritual realities come to play that help shape identity. And so you would often just assume a role in society or assume a role in your tribe or assume a role in your family, and that was assigned to you generally for life. Most people didn't have a career path, choices, an education choice. It's a very different culture that we've grown up in today. But identity is shaped primarily by your family and your community. Fast forward to modern culture, and our identity is shaped not by looking around at others around us, but by looking within. This is the age of individual expressionism, and we take our cues from our inner feelings, that I have this inner sense of identity, and it has to be expressed in order to be realized. And so we celebrate uh, Elsa in Frozen as she bursts out of the chains of her family that's oppressive, and she just wants to let it go and be all that she wants to be. And then the reality, she ends up in an ice prison and has to come back to family anyway. But if you think about the heroes of our stories, right? In, in ancient culture, the heroes were those who went out to battle and had um, themes of self-sacrifice, honor, right? Now our heroes like Elsa are those who are self-asserting and, and explore their identity, It's a very different framework with which to build identity. We swim in a a cultural narrative that says self-assertion, individual expressionism, that is the way that you find out who you truly are. Go travel the world. Go be who you want to be. Leave leave your family and perhaps the, the religious upbringing that you've had. Leave the traditions of your culture behind move to the inner west, explore life with all of its freedoms, inclusivity and acceptance, and be whoever you want to be, whoever your heart decides. Now my question for you, irrespective of your worldview here this morning, call yourself a believer or not, how's that going for you? 
How is that quest of self-discovery going for you? Who's feeling exhausted at trying to create themselves or remake themselves in line with the next cultural trend that happens to pop up on your Instagram reels? Who feels exhausted by that process? Why is it that we lack assurance, we feel like we're frauds, we wrestle with insecurity, we lack confidence, we don't feel like we belong, we feel isolated and learned? Why are all of those things true of us? Well, I want to suggest this morning that there's actually another way of finding and locating the truest thing about us, our true identity. And it's not by looking out and taking our cues from those around us. And it's not by looking within and taking our cues from our own feelings. It's actually about looking up and hearing what God has to say about us. And in Ephesians chapter 1, you couldn't get many more identity statements packed into a short couple of verses. In fact, Ephesians uh, 1, 1 to, we don't even really know where it ends, but 1 to 14 at least is one giant sentence. There's no uh, grammar in the original. It's just like verbal diarrhea of praise that Paul just um, says, blessed be to God for all of these things that he has done for us in Christ. In Christ. Now that's a, a really important phrase in the book of Ephesians. Easy to kind of skim past, in Christ. But that is the author's preferred way of describing us. He never uses the term Christians. Not even Ephesians, hardly in any of the other books is the term Christians used, right? We're called disciples, followers. But the predominant term that Paul will use is the term in Christ. In Christ. What does it mean? He uses it 27 times alone in the book of Ephesians. And it's not just that we believe in Jesus. It's more than that. It's that we have been united with Jesus. He'll say in Romans chapter 6, that we've been baptized with Jesus in his death and that we've been raised to new life with him in his resurrection. So what's happened to us in baptism, we go into the waters, we die to our old self and we raised a new person. That's what it means to be in Christ. By faith, our lives are connected to the very life of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I live, I live by faith. That's what it means to be included in Christ. And so Paul is going to unpack this new identity that we have in Christ with, I thought it was actually seven identity statements. I was like, as I was writing, I was like, yeah, seven, that's the perfect number. It's actually six, which is incomplete and the sign of the beast. But anyway, I've got six identity statements of our new identity in Christ. And this is who you are. This is the true reality of your identity and your existence if you're a follower of Jesus. You are chosen. You are set apart. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are given an inheritance and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So let's dive into it. Have I prayed yet? Did I pray? I did. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's important to do it as you start a sermon. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, this is what it says. You are chosen, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. 
holy moly, there is so much packed into just two sentences here in Ephesians chapter 1. But this is the line that sparked that song that Sam has written for us, that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Can you even wrap your head around that concept? God chose you before the foundation of the world, like before he ever said, let there be light. You were on his heart. And more than just on his heart, he wanted you. He chose you. Can, can you even, I mean, we cannot fathom that, right? We are finite creatures bound by time and space. We cannot understand the concept that God would possibly know in advance something that was going to happen. But more than that, that he would set his affection upon us. What a staggering truth that he chose us before an atom even existed. That's a beautiful truth. That's a truth that speaks of our worth, that God knew you more than that. He wanted you and he chose you to be his. Again, it says in verse 5 and verse 11, it uses this word predestined. He predestined us for adoption. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Now, Paul wasn't trying to start a theological fight by using that word, right? There's so much division over that word. But what it means is that God decided beforehand. God decided beforehand that he wanted you. He wanted you to be his, that he was making a people, his own people. He chose Abraham and renamed him and gave him a new identity, Abraham. He chose Israel. And he didn't choose them because they were smart, big, powerful. He chose them out of his grace. And the same is true of us. God has chosen us. He has decided beforehand, determined that he has a plan and a purpose and a will to call to himself a people, a changed people, a people of grace, a people loved by the Father. Paul wants us to see that God wanted you. You're not an accident. I'm sure some of you feel like you're the only accidental Christian in the room. It's like, you know what? I'm not really sure why I'm here. I'm pretty sure God made an accident when he chose me. I don't really understand why I responded to this message with my life and my story and my mess. Paul is screaming here, not about theological divisions. He's screaming here that God wanted you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose you to be His. Secondly, He has set us apart. He has set us apart. We were chosen, but we've been chosen for a purpose. See, we're not just saved from our sin. We're not just saved from hell. We're not just saved from the devil. We are saved for something. We've been saved for a purpose. Have a look there in, uh, in verse, chapter 1, verse 4. He uses this word, holy. It's the same word that he used as he introduced the letter. He said to the saints in Ephesus. Right? The saints, that He's not referring to a class of special Christians who are super spiritual and super Christian and awesome. He's just saying, everyone who follows Jesus is a saint. All of you. All of you in this church in Asia Minor where he's written the letter are saints. 
And he uses that word again here in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That word there, saints, holy, means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be special. God would, um, of all of the 12 tribes of Israel, there was one tribe that was set apart for a special holy purpose, and they were the Levites. And they would administer in the temple, in the presence of God, administering the sacrifices, being the go-between between the people of God and God himself. Set apart, made special. That's who we are. We're special to God. We are His special people called out of this world to be a distinct, different type of community, a changed people, a changing people in the world, but not of the world. And so what it means is that the opposite of holiness isn't just sin. I think, I think that's what we think, right? The opposite of holiness is sin. Actually, the opposite of holiness is common. That's what it means to not be holy. It means to be common. It means to be normal. That's not who we are. We are a set-apart people. We are strangers in this world, in this culture, living to a different story with different values, with a different end in mind. We're distinct. We ought to stand out. But sometimes that's hard for us to do, isn't it? Because we so long to just be accepted by the culture around us. We're uncomfortable Often, because our values and our ethics aren't aligned with the ethics and values of the workplace that we live in or the culture that we're a part of or our our family of origin. God calls us out to be a distinct, special people. Not weird. Like, not Ned Flanders weird, right? But But just different. Distinct lives. This is who we are. We are chosen. We're set apart. Thirdly, we're adopted. Have a look at verse 5. In love. Man, I wish I could, I could preach a whole sermon on the motivations for why God has done what He's done. For His glory, in love. He's lavished His grace upon us. In love, God predestined us for adoption to, his, to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. You know, one of the things that our Bible translations have been doing over the years is getting better and better at using gender-neutral language where it's appropriate. Right? And so rather than just saying mankind or he, where it means all people or anyone, they will use humanity or they. Right? But here it uses the word adoption as sons. Now, is that a, is that, have they missed some gender-neutral language here that they should have changed? Well, I don't believe that that's the case because if they were to change this one, we would lose the significance and meaning of what Paul is trying to say here. You see, that phrase there, adoption as sons, has profound significance. In the first century, a firstborn son stood to inherit the lion's share of the father's inheritance. In fact, sometimes they would inherit all of it, especially if that father or that ruler or that you know, Caesar himself in the first century adopted, is, it, is Octavius? He adopted Octavius, made himself a son, and Octavius inherited all of Caesar's wealth. But that's what Paul is saying, that God has adopted us to the sonship, to the position of firstborn sons in the family, that we stand to inherit 
everything that God has. And what does God have? He has it all. We become co-heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God, and the privilege that we have as sons and daughters, as firstborns, is that everything that belongs to God belongs to us. Talk about every spiritual blessing in Christ, right? God has not withheld from us. He's chosen us. He's made us special. He's set us apart. And He's adopted us into His very family. Fourth, we are redeemed. Chosen, set apart, adopted, and redeemed. Have a look at verse 7. In Him, there it is again, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In the background of this, um, the, this letter to the Ephesians is a story. This, this little story to this church falls against the backdrop of a story that God has been writing from the very beginning. It's the story of the Exodus. If you cast your minds back, in fact, we're going to be in Exodus after this. It's perfectly timed. If you cast your minds back to the narrative of Exodus, God's people are in slavery in Egypt under the harsh treatment of Pharaoh. And God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You, all, all of you who grew up in kids' church will remember the song. Um, and then 10 plagues come, 9 plagues come. The 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn. And God says to Israel, Sacrifice a lamb, spread the blood over the top of the doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over every house where there is blood smeared over the doorpost. Every house where there is not, the firstborn will die. Pharaoh eventually agrees, as all of the firstborn sons of Egypt die, to let God's people go, and they are redeemed. They are set free from their slavery through the Red Sea as God parts the Red Sea and then swallows up Pharaoh's armies. They have been redeemed. They've been set free. That is the language here that Paul uses to describe us. That there is a, a price that has been paid, and that price was the blood of Jesus. That he paid the ransom, he paid the payment in order to secure our freedom and set us free. No longer enslaved to the old master of our sinful flesh, but set free. And it means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're owned twice. Every single one of you are owned by virtue of your creation. God made you in His image. That gives you value, purpose, dignity, and worth. But now we are owned twice because He has purchased us back. He's made us His again. And the cost, the cost was the life and blood of His first son. And the cost is an indication to us of the seriousness of our situation, but also of the value that God sees us that He would give His one and only Son to make us His. I hope you're feeling loved this morning, church. This is the, the extreme lengths that God has gone to, to set His affection upon you and call you to Himself and adopt you into His family and wipe away your trespasses and give you freedom. That is who you are. Fifthly, we have been given an inheritance. And man, this is a sermon in and of itself. But let's go to verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will. There's uh, reading in the middle of sentences, like it's one giant sentence. I need to go back to verse 3 to make this all work, but the sermon would be two hours long. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time. And what is the plan? To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. God has this cosmic plan, this plan that He has been planning out since the very beginning. He has a purpose. Another way of saying it is He has a mission. And this mission is there in verse 10. It's to bring all things together under Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. That's, a, that's just a way of saying everything in every realm, the earthly realm, the heavenly realm, all of it will be brought together under Jesus. God has promised that He's going to remake the world. That He's going to make all things New, that he will correct injustice, that he'll heal what has been broken, that he will pull together the, the divide that existed between us and his holy presence. That God is going to remake this entire world. This is like, I don't know what your view of the future is like. You think, well, we believe in Jesus and we hang on to heaven and then we go up and we float on fluffy clouds and Cupid's there with a harp and and we just like ghosts floating around in this ethereal space. That could be nothing further from the picture of the Bible. It's a physical. God does not just abandon his creation that he made in Genesis chapter 1. Think, ah, oh, you know what? It didn't work. Let's start again with this spiritual realm. No, he is making all things new. And our future is as real and tangible as this is right now. But it's going to be a better world. And we as God's people inherit this future. This is what lies ahead for us. And it means that as God's people, as the church, we are signs to an age, to a world, that this future is just on the horizon. It means we're a people of justice. It means we're a people that are seeking to heal brokenness. It means that we are a people of reconciliation, bringing the good news and the healing of God's gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. This is our glorious future, and it's on the way. We've obtained an inheritance, and it's beautiful. Finally, we've been sealed with the Spirit. Have a look at verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We learn two things about the Spirit of God here. That we've been sealed with the Spirit and that the Spirit is the guarantee of our future inheritance. Now, in the, firstly, the seal. In the first century, a seal was, was probably like a wax seal that was used to mark and identify documentation. So a governor would send a letter via a, you know, a, a, a messenger that would carry that messenger on horseback. And in order to verify that the document was authentic and real and legit and that the words inside it were authoritative and powerful, the governor would mark a wax seal with his, his emblem, his signature on it to say this is legitimate. Sometimes it was also used of branding. So owners would have a branding fork that they would brand cattle. Sometimes even they would brand slaves. And it's a sign of a number of things. It's a sign of authenticity and it's a sign of ownership, a sign of authenticity and ownership. Now, 
for those of you who um, don't know what New Era caps are, uh, they're baseball caps, basketball caps, I think. Is that right? I, yeah, base, baseball and basketball. Thank you for the, the cultural aficionado in, on the staff team, James Wong. Um, when you buy a New Era cap, it comes with a sticker on the brim. And I haven't really understood why everyone left the sticker on the brim of the hat. I was like, why don't you just take the sticker off, man? That's weird. The kind of clashes with the whole vibe of the hat. Just take the sticker off, right? But the sticker is there as a sign that this is an authentic hat, that you paid full price, like $45 for this one. This is not a $3 hat from Paddy's Markets. This is a legitimate, authentic new era hat. And that's what the seal of the Spirit does for us. This is an authentic Christian. This is an authentic follower of Jesus. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The second thing it says is that you are owned, that you are owned, that you belong. The Spirit's seal is a way of God saying that you are mine, that you belong to me. The second thing you'll see there is the Spirit is God's guarantee of our inheritance. He is literally the down payment For those of you who have purchased a house, like the 3% of you in our community can purchase a house, or or, some of you have purchased outside of Sydney, to be fair. Um, What you do is when you purchase a house, you pay the 10% deposit, right? Just so you know, you can negotiate that to 5%. This is a hot tip for anyone who's thinking. You pay the down payment, the first installment, as a guarantee that you will come back and pay the rest. Because if you don't, you forfeit what you've just you've just paid, right? This is a guarantee that God is coming back. That He's coming back to take those who belong to Him. God has promised to make good on the rest. You know, I so often hear, um, as I talk to many of you, that you feel like a bit of a fraud as a Christian. Well, the phrase I hear so often is, I'm just not a very good Christian. I'm fearful that I'll be found out. And now to be fair, there may be, you know, willful disobedience in your life, you know, you know, walking worthy of the calling you've received. But I just want to let you know there are no fraudulent Christians. You can't receive the Spirit. You can't be sealed with God's seal of authenticity and be a fake. God has given us His Spirit as a sign, as a seal, as a guarantee that you are authentic and that you belong to Him. How do you define yourself? Who are you? If you wouldn't identify this morning as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how would you answer that question? Who am I? What are the things that I use in my life to define my reality? And if Perhaps you would permit yourself a moment of self-honesty. You would realize that self-validation isn't enough. Right? That's, that's the narrative of Frozen, right? Pursue your dreams. You end up in a ice castle, isolated, lonely, and longing for community, right? And so the solution is to be drawn back into community that then tells you how to live and what to do. So yes, stop looking outward. Stop seeking your validation from others around you and what they say in their opinions of you. But I want to suggest to you, stop looking inward as well because the answer is not there either. The answer is actually looking upward. 
and seeing what God would say of you. That you matter because He has not only created you, but He's chosen you, He's set you apart, He's adopted you, He's redeemed you, and He's set His Spirit upon you as a seal of ownership and authenticity. That you matter, that God loves you. The solution to our problem is found in hearing the voice of God. He says, I made you, I died for you, and I want to make you mine. Perhaps you are a Christian. You say, yes, this is me. I've put my faith and trust in Jesus. What does it mean for you to truly understand and live in this identity? That you really matter. That you are valuable. Because if we're real, that's the quest of our lives. To know that we are significant. To know that we're valued. To know that we matter. This is your reality. These statements are the truest thing about you as a follower of Jesus. Irrespective of your circumstance, no matter how difficult that may be right now, this is you. And these words, they are more important than the criticism of your boss. What God says about you is more important than the criticism of your boss, your manager. They're more important than the expectations of your parent to become whatever they dreamed that you should be. These are more important than the pressure that the culture puts on us to make it to be a success. These words are more important than the inner negative voice that just over and over inside your head tells you that you're not doing well enough. This is who you are. This is the true reality of the world that God loves you, that He knows you, and what God says matters most. Our identity not, does not come from what others say from out there, as, as healthy as it is to be in community. It doesn't come from within. It comes from above. And this is an identity that is not earned it's an identity that is graciously given to us as an act of grace and love by God. And my hope and prayer this morning is that you would receive that. I know that there are people in this room who need to receive it because as I was preparing this, I was like, you know what? There's actually a couple of things on this list that I'm struggling to live into, to live out of. It's our prayer this morning that you would receive this identity as yours and live in the full freedom that belongs to you by virtue of what Christ has done. You are in Christ. Church, God loves you more than you could possibly fathom. We're going to respond to that good grace of God in worship this morning with that beautiful song that Sam has written for us. And I want you to, I want you to meditate on the words of this song. This is you. So I invite you to stand, church, as we transition to a time of worship together. I'm going to stand. I want to pray over us. So let's stand together. That wasn't rhetorical. I'm going to invite you to, um, if you're comfortable, to just open your hands as a posture of receiving. I'm going to pray over us as a church. Now, Father, I thank you that you are good to us. These words that you have spoken over us this morning, if we're honest, Sometimes we really struggle to believe that they're true. We 
feel like a fake, we feel like a fraud. Our circumstances are just blocking our vision to see what's true. Father God, I pray that your love would wash over us this morning. To be known by you, God, to be loved by you, to be chosen to be yours. God, fill our hearts afresh this morning with the real truth of who we are. Help us to see your grace. Help us to enjoy it. God, we receive this morning. We receive this truth in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,